Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Nice to see you. Great to see you. I've been um, thinking a lot lately about the violence going around our nation. Oh, it is brutal. The news, got to have a thick skin to watch the news and just heart-wrenching for these families that are losing people to gun violence and the cities having so many issues that are just so tough to tackle. And you're right in the thick of it. I mean, I your job, you, um, I don't know how you sleep at night, you and your whole group, uh, the staff of the police departments all over the country. Wow. I mean, that is really stress plus. Yeah. And we've had mass shootings too. And I think about the ripple effect and how it goes through society. Yeah. You know, though every family that was affected and friend and loved one and I think about that that stuff a lot. I feel like we're going to have a whole epidemic of um, trauma. You know, yeah. people suffering from trauma, whether it's, I forgot what it's called. We, we used to call it urban trauma in the city. That's an interesting term. I, mm-hmm. never heard that. I don't know if they really use that anymore. Uh, it might be an old term. But, like, it's called associate trauma, something similar to that word. Mm. Like... You know, you're not ex- actually experiencing the trauma, but hearing about it. Well, I think when you see these, these um, let's say, mass shootings, these horrific events, there are people just like you. They're either, you know, they're, they're grocery shopping or they're in a church or they're, they're doing regular things mm-hmm. so that people watching are thinking, God, that could be you know, my, my family member, myself. That's what I do. You know, that kind of thought makes you just feel like this is out of control in my life, too, just watching it. But the heart-wrenching interviews of people that lost people right after, you know, I'm, I'm a news watcher. Whether you that, are. Whether that's good or bad. And uh, my husband will say sometimes, just turn it off. Yeah. But I just, I'm a news watcher, and it's just, um, you're right, it's an epidemic. It's just, and and for people to say which is said often, well, I'm a little nervous that summer is here, warm weather and, you know, the next season and knowing that it brings trouble instead of right. 100% joy, which it should. I know. sad. I mean, for our listeners, we're in the Chicagoland area, and and I feel like crime and violence is, is out of control here. And so we are seeing a lot of it on a daily basis on the news. and Everywhere. I, and in neighborhoods, you never thought there would be violence. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And people are scared, and it's affecting people. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's going to be a long-term effect to this. I don't, I, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. But um, I, I just worry about our society, and especially with these mass shootings. And it's always, yeah. uh, I feel like it's always that person, you know, they wrote a manifesto and... Mm-hmm. I don't know, we need an expert for this, but I'm like, is a manifesto code for they suffered from mental health issues or are people profiling when they say these shooters all have mental health issues? I'm not, you know, I don't want to put a stigma on that because I don't believe that people with mental health issues are are prone to violence. Well, that's, yeah, that's always the, the, uh, the fight back on that is that not to profile people with mental health issues. Most likely the people that did the shootings have mental health issues. But, of course, it's not to say, you know, the millions and millions of people that struggle with mental health, mental illness, you know, this isn't them. Right. But uh, 
but it is scary what's going on. It is really, really just surreal what's happened in our country. It is. You know, I feel like people have to just turn off the news. That mm-hmm. will that will help a lot and focus on their family and what's in front of them. And you have to keep, just keep living life and know that it's yeah. not – don't get sucked into it. Mm-hmm. That's – for my whole career, I tried not to get sucked into it. Like, you can really kind of lose yourself through it. So keep those connections outside of the violence and find and people like that you support say. you and love you and – and keep keep going doing what you do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Today we have two really interesting guests on one of the most talked about topics in mental health, the mind-body relationship. First, Dr. Kate Tomasino, an assistant professor of medicine and psychiatry at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and co-director of the Behavioral Medicine for, for Digestive Health Program within the Digestive Health Center at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. She specializes in health psychology and is an expert in the use of psychological and behavioral treatment for chronic digestive conditions. We also have Dr. Anjali Pandit. Dr. Pandit is a clinical psychologist specializing in GI health and co-director as well of the Behavioral Medicine Program in the Digestive Health Center at Northwestern. She is an assistant professor of medicine within the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and Psychiatry. Her role is primarily primarily clinical, delivering evidence-based intervention to patients with GI conditions and symptoms. Both of these doctors share the passion and study of mind-body relationships and how one can benefit from this knowledge and understanding. We have been so looking forward to having you two on Behind Our Door. Thank you for giving us some of your time. Yeah, we so appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. We're just, uh, you, you forgot to mention how beautiful they are, too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they are it's, stunningly it's beautiful young, women for those listening. Young, young mothers, yes. yes. They, have, they have a little time to spare, and they gave it to us, which is really nice. In a heap of traffic today, yes. not to mention that. Um, anyway, I, starting out, I, I have to say, I, I'm, I met Kate, uh, uh, Kate, I will refer to as Kate and Anjali, said it's fine, um, years ago, putting together a conference that was a mental health conference that was about the physical and mental health connection. And I came upon in this in the, G, the gastroenterology department in Northwestern that you actually have a behavioral health team in there. So impressive. What a genius idea. When did that start? When did they put that department in there, in gastroenterology? So the program's been around for a while, long before Anjali and I actually started there. I think it's been about 10 years now. Is it 15? I think more, yeah. Somewhere At between least 10 2010. And 15. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Such a, it's such a genius idea, like I'm saying, because so often if people have these issues, you know, let's say anything that would fall under gastroenterology and somebody says it could be the stress, which obviously tied to the gut, mm-hmm. the whatever, um, maybe you should go see someone in our psychiatry department. That's a whole step that some people would say, I'm not doing that. Yeah, but if yeah. it's right in the department, I would think that is just a gift. So I'm, so I'm preparing for a presentation in less than a week, actually, and I read a really cool study that looked at that exact thing. Um, and people were in this study 
six times more likely to accept her, accept her referral if it was in the department as opposed to an external referral from a gastroenterologist to a psychologist. Yeah, interesting. It that makes sense. Yeah, six times. I was shocked by that. That's yeah. Well, I, I feel in general like the mind body connection is missing in gut health, especially. Um, I don't feel like we talk about that at all in mental health. And we talk and, about the brain. And I gut the study the gut is talked about so much. I mean, with just the lay people, it's like mm-hmm. their books. They're it's sort of like all of a sudden everyone went gluten free, and I don't even yeah. know what that is. But uh, do you f- both as professionals feel that? Can you hear that people are talking about the gut? It's almost in fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very um, in vogue to talk mm-hmm. about the gut right mm-hmm. now. Um, and I will say that there are some differences between what. I think a referral to psychiatry might be like compared to a referral within gastroenterology. Um, Such as? Well, so I think having a behavioral medicine program embedded within GI means that we are um, specifically trained to treat the GI tract and GI conditions, which um, I think is a different thing than a GI gastroenterologist referring someone to a psychiatrist or to mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we try and make that distinction in the work that we do with patients. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So tell us how this comes about. Like, are they inpatient and they're referred to you or you're, they see you and you refer them to... How does it all work? Mm-hmm. So mostly um, patients are seen by our gastroenterologist on an outpatient basis. Mm-hmm. And then if they see a reason for referral, then they'll refer to us. And then they, once the referral is placed, they can call and make an appointment. Sometimes it is on the inpatient side too. So if a patient has a really, um, honestly, traumatic surgery or is on the inpatient side and gets a new diagnosis, for example, of inflammatory bowel disease, then they might put the referral in while they're still as an inpatient and we see them on the outpatient side. And the referral reason um, really can vary very widely depending on the gastrointestinal condition and what they're presenting with. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So do they do do the gastroenterologists, let's say, find it sometimes difficult to separate where the stress is playing a factor on someone's situation and the biological issues going on? Is it hard to decipher? I mean, I'm assuming they send you guys the problems of when it's stress and anxiety are probably playing into this. How do you how do they separate that? So, you know, I don't want to, please feel free, um, but both. So I think um, when I say both, what I mean is that sometimes it's because stress and anxiety is a component of the care but or the presentation, but not always. Um, I would say most of the time there's at least some element of that, but we also work with patients who have chronic pain in the GI tract or Um, what we call visceral hypersensitivity or esophageal hypersensitivity, which means that the nerves in the GI tract are very sensitive and they're sending really powerful messages to the brain that something is wrong when actually nothing is wrong. It's normal digestive functioning. And so in that case, that might be very distressing and that might cause the anxiety about their condition because they're worried something terrible is happening to them. But it's not presenting the same way as someone who gets very anxious and then has diarrhea, which is a little bit different. Interesting. It's, you know, so it's almost sometimes the symptoms aren't there and it's more of a psychological. And I guess the worst, the worst 
word to use in this day and age is psychosomatic. I, I always think that's that a big, I always think that's the biggest insult mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. say to anybody about anything. Mm-hmm. But is it that kind of thing that you're trying to say? It's a it's sometimes a ghost symptom. It's it's, it's not though. It's nerve based. Yeah. So we oh. would we would say it's a brain gut. So there's this whole class of disorders or diagnoses called disorders of gut-brain interaction, um, which used to be called functional gastrointestinal disorders. And IBS, which we all know is a real medical condition, that's mm-hmm. a disorder of gut-brain interaction. So something's really happening there. It's just that you don't see it structurally. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's super right. interesting. Go ahead. We, um, with patients, we tend to use a metaphor that I think is really helpful in distinguishing the differences between a problem with the GI tract that is more structural um, versus a brain-gut interaction issue. Um, so, for example, if someone is sitting down to write an email at their computer and they look and they sit down and the screen is cracked, um, that's very clearly a structural issue with the computer and they may not be able to engage in the process of writing this email and they know exactly what to do. They just have to replace the screen. Um, Alternatively, if someone walked in and tried to sit at their computer and write this email and the computer program wasn't working, so the email wasn't coming up or the website wasn't working, absolutely very problematic. This person cannot write their email, but it's not something that needs to be replaced in terms of a structural component of the computer. It's Mm -hmm. a software problem. Mm -hmm. The parts and pieces of the computer aren't communicating internally together as they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's exactly the kind of problem that someone like Kate or I, um, or there's some other options too, can work on, kind of correcting the software of the gut mm-hmm. and the connectivity between the brain and the gut rather than structurally um, doing a replacement of, for example, the screen or, mm-hmm. you know, so before this kind of, uh, before, let's say, your behavioral health department came into gastroenterology, was there more surgery, thinking you had to replace the parts, or? It's an interesting I question. I mean, it's such, a, yeah. it's such an, interesting, such an mm-hmm. interesting idea, this whole, I know that at Northwestern, cardiology also has a behavioral mm-hmm. health yeah. team, yeah. and I just um, think there's so many aspects of it. Like I think with cardiology, it's somebody, so many times people be like, I'm not going to see somebody to see some shrink. You know, they, (laughs) so it's good that it's in there. It's in these departments just like yours. But with, I can't get over that you're saying that now there's this whole knowledge of the wiring of, you know, Uh the gut. I mean, that's, it's so technical. Right. I mean, you guys are, I'm trying to understand. Yeah, you've got to break it down for Honestly, us. I have to break it down. It's just Julie and I. <laughs> yeah. And our listening audience, yes. usually. <laughs> it's, you know, I in, in terms of the question that you asked about if more surgeries were done, I think not necessarily surgery, but certainly a lot more intervention and digging really deep Physical. down. So many more, so much more testing. Testing, 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 testing. Trying to figure out what this is. And patients often want more testing because they're certain that there's something wrong. And we tell them there is something wrong. You know, we believe you. Mm-hmm. And I think just knowing that we believe them and that their physician believes them, it's just that the type of treatment we're doing isn't what you normally think of when you think of treating a health condition. It's not a medicine necessarily, although sometimes they do work yeah. for disorders of gut-brain interaction and can work really well. Yeah. Um, and that actually I think you all would be interested that some of the medications that work best we call neuromodulators, but are actually in the class of medications that antidepressants oh. are in. Oh, so wow. a lot of different antidepressants work very well 
um, in treating these conditions. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's a surprise. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh. And why why is it that they work so well? So um, many of these medications work on serotonin, which is the neurotransmitter in the brain that we really think about when it comes to mood and anxiety. But actually, ninety five percent of the body's serotonin is produced in the gut. Oh, see, so I didn't know that. Know. These <laughs> medications have a direct impact mm -hmm. on GI functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, and we might use a different dose if we're targeting the GI tract. Usually lower. Yeah. Hmm. And that's why we, like Kate said, we call them neuromodulators to take out so interesting. those you know, old stigmas that come with the term antidepressant. And right. it's not the true reason that we're using them any, much of the time. Mm -hmm. Wow. So if, if someone's having an, an issue, I mean, how do you, like, what is the process? How do you diagnose them? How does it, how does it look? How does it work? So we don't actually diagnose the medical condition itself. That's diagnosed by their medical provider, whether right. that's a physician or APP or nurse um, practitioner. So then once they come and see us, then we talk to them about their condition, their diagnosis, really ask what they know about it, mm -hmm. um, make sure that they get education on their condition and actually just what we did with you all. So we talk about the brain gut connection, why they're seeing us, confirming that we know that these things are real and that we're not treating depression or anxiety. We're treating things that have to do with their medical condition. We do talk to them about how we are going to address anxiety about their condition. And then we talk about how that can play a role. So we talk about the GI stress cycle and then how two of the primary treatments that we do with people, cognitive behavioral therapy. I was going to ask that, if that's the rethinking. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. And gut-directed hypnosis is the other one. Those are two Wait, of the Wait, what primary. is it called? Gut-directed <laughs> hypnosis. You heard me right. Okay. <laughs> so, so tell uh -huh. us about that first. What yeah. does that look like? What is that? Hypnotherapy. What is that? What, do you, what is that? I mean, you, you are retraining the thinking, but how mm -hmm. do you... Um, so... If we go back to that computer metaphor, we talk to people about hypnosis almost like a hard reset on their computer, right? So we're trying to reset the connectivity. But when we really think about what's happening, um, there's only a little bit of literature for use in things like inflammatory bowel disease, but a huge literature for using it in IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and it targets that brain-gut pathway and the brain-gut communication um, in two different ways. There's some evidence that it's affecting the gut itself. So like secretions in the GI tract and motility and the sensitivity throughout the GI tract of those nerves I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the threshold of sensitivity of a nerve, um, if you have a normal amount of gas and you don't have sensitive nerves, then that won't really feel that uncomfortable, maybe a little bit. But if you have hypersensitivity, then even a normal amount of gas might feel excruciating and you think something's terribly wrong, but really it's just a normal amount of gas. Hypnosis can help reset some of that threshold. And I think, based on what we know, one of the primary reasons is through the brain and brain neuroplasticity. So do you all know what neuroplasticity is? No. You should explain it. Okay. <laughs> so basically, it means that the pathways in our brain can be changed um, and how our brain is communicating. We used to think that, you know, our nerves were just wired and that was set. And now we know that a lot of these pathways can be changed. So different areas of the brain might light up if someone comes within with IBS and they have any sort of a gut sensation, the pain area of the brain might light up and the stress area of the brain, that fight or flight response. And so when we do hypnosis, we help try to reintroduce a new pathway in the brain so that when they have gut sensations, those areas aren't lit up. And they have shown this on wow. MRI, which is really cool. Wow. wow. So if somebody is going through hypnosis, um, 
they, do they have several sessions and then do you teach them how to do it themselves? Like, is it a meditative sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Good question. So we um, use a protocol. Um, so it's the one that's widely used amongst all GI psychologists kind of across the country and the world. Um, and it's typically, well, they range, so between four and seven sessions. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, the patients are instructed to also practice. So we give some audio for them to use to practice at least five times a week between our sessions. And then when we're done with the protocol, the patients, you know, generally many of them like to continue to practice, but they don't need to, and they still maintain the benefits of the treatment of hypnosis. So it reset their brain, basically. So the way that I explain it to people is if you think about, and this isn't actually what's happening, but it's the way I like to think about it. If you think about certain pathways lighting up when you experience a gut sensation, the more you practice it, the more you light up that new pathway. And so then that has changed the pathways in the brain at the end of the experience. Then when they eat something or have a digestive experience, uh, their colon squeezes, right? It, it's going to a different part of the brain. And so it's not eliciting the pain response. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I never, ever thought of this before, nor have I ever heard of it until she brought you guys up. So, um, And then what about CBT, cognitive behavior therapy? How do you, when do you use that and not the hypnotherapy? How do you, def how do you decide that's, um, that's what you do? And also, if you could explain it a little bit to... You've talked about it on other yeah. other mm -hmm. shows, other diagnosis, but which I always am fascinated with CBT. But Me too. how do you how do you decide to use that? And is that the same thing? A couple of sessions and someone's on their way. Um, well, so CBT cognitive behavioral therapy is it's kind of a set of different kinds of interventions, um, and all based on the premise between. Um, well, this idea that there's an interrelationship between thoughts, behaviors, physical sensations, and emotions, um, and that we may be able to intervene um, if we want a certain effect on certain areas of that interrelationship. Um, and so I know we use it a lot with patients. Um, uh, in my mind, even that psychoeducation about the condition, about the brain-gut connection, that is part of what cognitive behavioral therapy is. Um, uh, since that's so foundational in how we're going to change people's thinking around their mm -hmm. symptoms. Um, and so, you know, we may focus on cognitions, which are thoughts. Um, we might focus on behaviors, which are what someone does in response to their symptoms. Um, and we might also give patients relaxation strategies because we know that the body's stress response may contribute to their GI symptom experience. Um, so we kind of use any and all of these mm -hmm. flexibly, depending on what patient mm -hmm. um, comes in and what they need. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that's important that we haven't really talked about yet is that everyone has a response in their digestive tract to stress, right? So stress affects all people's digestive tracts. It just affects the degree to which it affects us. It varies from person to person, and where we feel that effect can vary. But there's a lot of really cool research that shows that our emotions have a very characteristic response in our gut. So when you feel, you know, we read about it in a book, my stomach was tied up in knots, mm -hmm. or I had butterflies in my stomach. There are actually real things happening in response to that. You know, with anger, for example, our gut kind of goes haywire. Things slow down at certain parts. They speed up in other parts. With depression, 
it tends to slow the whole GI tract. And with anxiety, it tends to speed it up. Oh. If you have a lot of those at once, <laughs> yeah. you can imagine what happens, right? And that's when people feel a lot of those very uncomfortable mm-hmm. digestive sensations. So even if there are visceral hypersensitivity, even if that's a component in IBS, we know that stress can trigger and flare those symptoms because it can trigger and flare digestive symptoms for anyone. Interesting. It's it's so empowering, I'm sure, to people when they realize they think they have a major problem and they go in for one of you know a therapy of some sort through behavioral therapy to realize they can control and change it. That there's first they must be relieved. There's nothing major wrong. Um, I mean, if they have issues, it's not as bad as they thought. Mm-hmm. And just to, I mean, there must be such great relief at the end of you know. Or, or getting through, seeing some improvement. Yes. That their mind mm-hmm. can take over and improve their body. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely mind-blowing to me. <laughs> it is. I, I feel like yeah. this is something that is, I was so excited. We were so excited to have you on behind our door because this is something people don't know about in general. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, it makes sense. Hearing two professionals like yourselves talk about this, it makes sense, but it's really... Um, it's just a mind-blowing idea, eye-opening. Well, you just um, told me about the whole police department um, and the problems that we have (laughs) when you're you're talking about stress in general. Obviously, I always think of that. We're under, Mm -hmm. you know, we have such high-stress jobs, and I don't know many people that I've worked with over the years that don't have some type of GI issue. Yeah. Yeah. And, and trauma, we always contribute. Yes. Well, yeah. But I always contributed to wearing a belt, you know, uh-huh. a duty belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Well, you know, when we talk to people about this, it's not just one thing that can cause their symptoms. So we're never telling anyone that stress right. is the only thing. And honestly, uncomfortable tight clothing is another thing yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. can contribute. Yeah. So you weren't wrong there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's the only thing. It's probably not. I I would just kind of interject and say, you know, Kate and I are both health psychologists. So, you know, we went into the field of clinical psychology knowing that there is this mind-body connection and that, you know, there are ways in which our experiences can very much change us inside. Um, Of course, with many other factors, too. Mm -hmm. Um, We take a biopsychosocial approach Mm -hmm. to seeing patients and understanding patients. So, um, like, like you mentioned, there are psychologists and behavioral medicine people and cardiology and kind of all across the hospital settings, too. Um, just because I think medicine in general is broadening the understanding of mm-hmm. where these symptoms and conditions can come from and how they can be treated. And just to think of treating things with more the mind, you know, altering the mind or, or taking your mind to a different wiring mm-hmm. instead of more medications. Mm-hmm. Um, I just look at the past as, say, more testing, maybe more procedures. The past meaning years ago, more medications to calm somebody down. This is so healthy. It's such an open door. Do you work on um, eating habits along with this? I was going to ask that. Like, do you have a nutritionist? Yeah, we do. Yeah. We work very closely with um, the dietitians in our department who specialize also in GI conditions, and then we work with dietitians who also help people um, changing their behaviors to facilitate weight loss. Yeah, and I think there are ways in which the patterns of eating can 
contribute to GI symptoms Sometimes. too. And as psychologists, I think we can help with kind of shifting around habits and behaviors that might be mm-hmm. helpful or detrimental. Right. So that's something that we Well, I'm just on. thinking we, we recently had a guest on who was talking about anorexia, yeah. you know, and eating disorders. Yeah. And, and I think that's when it really clicked for the mind-body connection on something like that. And I, do you see a lot of those? We do. And, you know, the type of eating disorder that we see isn't usually what you think of with an eating disorder like with anorexia. Um, what do you mean? Yeah, so um, people aren't necessarily stopping eating because they are concerned about their weight or shape or, um, you know, they don't have that, what we call like a fear of fat in mm-hmm. anorexia. And often, you know, sometimes there is body image disturbance with some of our conditions, um, but it's not like necessarily the driver of the changes in eating pattern. Usually people stop or adjust their eating or eat in a way that's not as helpful to try to manage their symptoms, but then it becomes part of the problem. And so sometimes we see people who are underweight because they've been restricting, restricting, restricting what they can eat, thinking that's going to solve the problem of their chronic abdominal pain. But yeah. it actually, it's Makes not it having worse. any effect. Yeah. Um, so when we when we intervene, like uh, Anjali was saying, in terms of the eating patterns, that's a lot of what we're looking at. So, so in your department, there's someone who also is on patterns, a nutritionist or a dietitian, you're saying? So the dietitian or um, the dietitian who... Works about works on the nutrition with the patients will help with the f- kind of the food recommendations I would say and they do make recommendations about eating patterns but that is also a lot of what we do is mm-hmm. yeah, when and how much and how fast and all of those things are you eating what's going on in the environment while you're eating yeah and I I imagine that people who have these digestive issues are concerned about the day and where you know where they are they're so used to the panic of having some kind of problem that they think they can manage it on their own. But the relief of coming into behavioral therapy in that department, again, such a such a great idea. Well, I think the validation, too, that it's not all in your head. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. We really emphasize that. Yeah. I think that's important to reiterate to people because, you know, oftentimes they're like, oh, you're fine. You need to change your diet. There's, you know, maybe you're just not eating healthy enough. And I think a lot of people feel like, well, I'm doing the, the best I can, but I'm Absolutely. I'm still having all these symptoms. And that kind of goes back to how we opened this, which is this whole, you know, referral to mental health or referral within the GI department. And I, you know, I think it's so critical that we're embedded within the GI department as faculty treating patients just as a gastroenterologist would. It's just mm-hmm. the process through which the patient is experiencing symptoms is different. And so they should see the specialist for that brain-gut interaction problem. Right. Um, so it's in that way, it's very much... Uh, to rule out the, the like, the medical? Yeah, yeah, so... Or address the medical, not rule out necessarily, but to, yeah. to address the medical first. To establish what's going on. Right. Absolutely. And then, you know, if it's needed, having someone on staff on site to who can treat this condition directly through psychological intervention, I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is. I also get a totally different side of this is I have, I get a lot of crisis calls. I've done this for quite a while. And I've gotten over the, over the years calls from people, parents who have like a 20-something 
kid in college that is experiencing digest like all of a sudden is but digestive issues mm -hmm. to be diagnosed with Crohn's disease or uh, ulcerative colitis and they are really depressed some of these kids have left school um, and I am thinking of for some reason I'm thinking more there were more boys mm -hmm. than girls just uh, randomly I think of the calls I've had but do you address that kind of thing, or is that when you farm it out to a different like psychology department, or is that something under your roof too? We work on that. We work on that too. So with inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, there are actually um, two different pathways to becoming depressed or having anxiety about your condition, and one is just that the inflammation that comes with the condition actually predisposes people to depression. Really? So those huh. same depression, those same markers, inflammation markers, if you, there are studies that show if you take the, the blood of a person who is depressed and you look at those same markers, they're elevated even if they have no inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and those are the same markers that we look at when we're seeing if the inflammation is active in IBD. Mm. So that's one pathway. But then also, as you're describing, having IBD is really hard and yeah, it can and be painful and lead to long absences from school and so we definitely work with people who are going through that. Yeah, I mean, this is you know, think kids going to college and they're just, I can't handle all this. They leave school and that's bad enough. But it's good to know that when they're going to a gastroenterologist, they can still treat the other side of it mm -hmm. with uh, your department too. So our other our our podcast is is. I was going to say national, international. We're all over the place. We found out in other countries, et cetera. But is this, Northwestern's a wonderful hospital in Chicago. Is this sort of protocol all over the country in um, cities, big and small, is this um, a, a common found for people listening that are from California to New Jersey and everyone in between? Unfortunately, no. Um, <laughs> we're, we're working on teaching people and training people and spreading the education, spreading the word is what I was going to say, but um, we have big access problems uh, in terms of getting in touch with a GI psychologist. Do you have a lot of people from other states who come here to see you guys? We do. Yeah, I bet. Um, I think a lot of that pull is for Northwestern in general, and then, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, with telemed, it's made it a little bit easier for some people, but... Can you do telemed? Yes. You can. Uh huh. What does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it looks pretty much the same. So yeah. you would go to your GI doc, like locally, possibly, and then uh, they would refer you to. So, um, let's see. So I thought you meant like what was the actual process of therapy? So you mean like no, how no, we no. Get, I know. Yeah, yeah, we know what telemedicine. So there, is, uh, yeah, there are, there are. Um, there are other GI psychologists. Yeah. I don't mean to say like we're the only ones. No, and you I can know. find them. There's a, a organization called the Rome Foundation that has a special psychogastro group, and there's a directory there. So if you are listening to this and you're somewhere else, you can look on this. It's romegipsych.org, and they have uh, a therapy directory. And I believe um, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation also has a therapist directory, if not okay, the building one. Okay, good for people to hear. Yeah. Uh huh. And then I think there's another website called Gastro Girl, and I believe they are also. Yeah growing their directory. So there are there are directories out there, and there are GI psychologists in the UK and in Australia yep. and in Spain and in Italy. Good. That's, and that's I think good to hear. In, somewhere in South America. Um, it's just that it's, it's just honestly hard. There are probably, I think, five in the 
uh, five groups in the Chicagoland area, maybe? Chicago is kind of a hub. Yeah, like. and then there are a number of, if you actually get to the, probably 30 or so, yeah. I feel like. Um, but Chicago's, we're lucky. We have a lot lucky. more here than other I states. I know, we, we have a lot of good resources yeah. here in the city. Rural areas, it's a lot harder. But there are other, you know, there are apps well, and that's other why things was, being developed. Right, mm -hmm. that's why I was asking if someone's in a rural, rural yeah. area, how do they, you know, if you're doing telemedicine, I suppose they would access it through that. Mm-hmm. Which is great. Yeah. Thank I God see for some people I've never met before, yeah. like in Rockford yeah. and Champaign. Wow. That's wonderful. I mean, we're, I didn't realize that Chicago had such, like you say, the hub on this. Mm -hmm. Lucky. But I hope that it does spread throughout the country. This is just it, uh, yeah. Yeah. What is probably the a matter of time. What is the demographic you think you treat the most? Is it men? Is it women? Is it kids? Is it adults? Is it all over the place? Is it... I'm just curious. Well, we both see adults. Um, oh, okay. So um, our clinic is open to 18 and up. Um, I think traditionally, women tend to seek health care more than men. Well, that's um, true. So, you know, therefore, a lot of our referrals are that way. And, I, um, you know, I think there can be some other aspects, um, especially when we're talking about lower GI conditions. Women historically have tended to be more open about kind of talking about those kinds of processes than men. Um, I will say, I don't know, I've never actually done a calculation or kind of a investigation into the proportion of patients and the demographics. Um, I'm yeah. just, I'm just curious. Yeah. I know you would treat adults, but what about what about children? Did they have the available? They, they, they do. do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think that's funny you said that because I would actually say the opposite of yeah. women not being as open to talk about gastrointestinal conditions mm -hmm. as men. I don't think the, I see a lot of men with upper GI conditions, mm -hmm. but I don't, yeah. Yeah, I think my, I think right now, honestly, my breakdown is probably 50-50, yeah. but I agree with you that like broadly speaking, I think that the research would probably say that we see more women than men and that's definitely true with IBS, but. Um, is yeah. there an age well, many people experience the onset of, of IBS in their, like, college-age years. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and that's when I think a lot of these disorders of gut-brain interaction come on. So yeah. overall in gastroenterology, there aren't that many kids. I mean, we just don't young see, kids. I think there yeah. absolutely are, actually. Oh. It's just that we don't see them. Yeah. Um, we have... We're not special. We're not trained to see people to and see pediatrics. Pediatrics. So, yeah. yeah but there are GI psychologists at uh, Lurie Children's. Oh. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And then a colleague of ours has a practice, and they have um, a lot of GI psychologists there, too. In our and I know um, we talked about hypnosis, but I think kids respond really well to hypnosis. They do. Oh, There's really? so mm -hmm. much creativity really? and mm -hmm. imagination involved in it that they um, they're more really open enjoy to it, it. to That's taking that. it in. They're more open to it. They're they're open. Yeah, they're open to it, and their brains, I think, are more receptive to that kind of imaginatory imaginative kind of therapy really interesting yeah what what about women who are a certain age hitting like menopause years mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. speaking for myself <laughs> hormones play a huge role in this um and there's a lot of gynecological overlap with the conditions that we treat because hormones can play a huge role in the gi tract and digestive functioning 
Yeah, because the more I'm reading about it, the more I find that out. And then, you know, it makes me wonder, like, how many women out there are suffering and we don't know if it's medically based or psychologically based or... How d- can we not separate the two? Yeah, or, right. Yeah. And and how do we determine that, I guess? It's, I think really, I mean, I'm incredibly biased, but anything uh-huh. medical... Um, psychological or we call them brain-gut psychotherapies or mind-body psychotherapies can help with if it's a pain-based... I mean, we don't treat the... If it's something that requires a surgery or procedure, I'm not by any means saying that we can do that. We can't treat the inflammation of inflammatory bowel disease, but we can certainly help with the chronic pain and the... Mm -hmm. um, or the acute pain that comes with that and teach strategies to deal with the stress. You're going to have a whole lot of women knocking on your door. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, people, because people just don't know about this. They don't. They don't. Do you find that, that this is, the, the word is spreading, or that people come to you through the gastroenterologist and say, I had no idea this existed? Yeah. And I would also say, I think we get people that want to see us, mm-hmm. but we require seeing a gastroenterologist mm-hmm. prior. And they I was going to ask you that, if they have to go through the medical side know first. Know that this would be helpful for them. The reason that, I would think so. The I reason that we sense. want them to is because we really want to make sure that they're getting that piece of their care. So we know that we're offering one piece of, of the care. Um, but having sense. that evaluation and seeing if yeah. there are medical interventions that are necessary is, I think, essential. So, yep. But people, the, I think the general listener, don't know that this is, that this is out there, and it's just such a resource. I agree with that. Um, I've never heard of it until you brought up their names, so <laughs> this is brand new for me. Because I also often think about people who struggle with obesity, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think of the connection there. You know, we blame them for eating too much or eating the wrong foods and um, fat shame people. We're definitely a society that does that. We put a lot of pressure on people, and I always look at it like there's more going on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. We're all wired differently and supposed to look different. I mean, mm-hmm. body shapes and sizes come in all different forms. Um, uh, but I think we know a lot more about how certain people respond to different kinds of foods in their brains and that also how their you know microbiome might be playing a role. I know they're very, very... Um, you know, we're not quite there in fully understanding that, but there's so much physiology that goes into why someone, you know, why someone's weight or shape is what it is. And it's so not um, appropriate or helpful to put the blame on the person. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like victim shaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, what? So what? What do you think that what happened? We're so fascinated. I'm sorry. What have we not? What have we not asked both of you that you would like to put out there? I mean, I'm trying. We're trying to understand this. It's really this is complicated mm-hmm. and complex. And um, you know, sometimes Julie and I make we laugh that we're we're so caught up in the conversation on these podcasts we forget we're. Um, we forget we're even doing a podcast, mm-hmm. That's <laughs> and, so true. Uh, and we have to remember that. But, but um, what are some other things like? Um, how long do you see? Let's say, mm-hmm. how long do you see people for yeah. generally before they're on their way doing their own? You know, hopefully they've been trained by you how to continue hypno hypnosis or yeah. what have you. I think that's actually one of the best parts of our treatments is that they're they're very time limited and brief. So 
Some people might benefit in as few as four sessions. Occasionally, we have some people who benefited even like one or two. But typically, we see people for about, I would say, five to seven or six to eight sessions. If we do the full hypnosis protocol, that's a seven-session treatment, and we usually do one more for that education piece, and we train people in a certain breathing technique that's super helpful, um, diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, What's the, what is that? Yeah, like, what is part, that? Is that part of meditation and the... What is that? It can breathing be, is so, but breathing it's, it's is more of a so relax. interesting. It's like a, like a yoga breathing. I, I try to do it, but I'm not very. I don't. I don't calm down. <laughs> or like really a meditation ever, so. breathing. So um, we like to differentiate between meditation and relaxation, even though there's a huge overlap there. But when we're focusing on the relaxation side, um, it's more about actually calming down the sympathetic nervous system and promoting the parasympathetic. So calming down the fight, flight, or freeze response and promoting the relaxation, or like we call it, rest and digest response. Hmm. So um, you eventually should have a really great video that people yeah. can access online. <laughs> and yeah, how to do this, it's people, been in the... people would run to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm that's... excited to see it now. Go ahead, I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, no, no. Um, but so, so the way that that works is it helps calm down the stress response, which we were telling you both earlier, um, can disrupt digestion on purpose because if we have to respond to a stressor like if that stressor required us to run or fight or freeze right we don't want to be using that energy to digest our food so it naturally goes away and our digestion is disrupted so if we calm that down then we can start that process up to digest our food again wow mm -hmm. and and so I'm, I'm trying to picture how this works. Like I come into the office and <laughs> you teach me how to breathe? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So we explain what I just explained <laughs> right, to you, but yeah. in, in more detail. Right. And then, yeah, I demonstrate it. And then I, we have the other person try it. People must be fascinated that this works. You know, thinking, oh, when they feel better, yeah. there must be a light <laughs> yeah. bulb of, wow, because... Uh -huh. It's so, um, you know, you can do this at home once you learn how to do it, and it must be life-changing. I mean, you give people back a portion of their life that they lost being prisoners of, you know, the such routine of having such bad yeah. stomach issues. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think I feel really grateful to be doing this work because, it like you said. It must be rewarding Yeah, in that you can really help people live their lives again. Mm -hmm. um, I would say if they're receptive to it. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, you know, some people who come in and, and don't have that same perspective of the mind-body connection or um, are really intent on finding and understanding um, some some hardware problem that might be going on. Um, but overall, I think people are very grateful. It's so interesting that as psychologists that you have – it's so unique that you have a finite amount of time with patients when usually you have a year of psychotherapy or, you know, you have a long-term relationship with many patients. This is so different in that way. It's really interesting. It's unique in that. I think a lot of health psychology models and treatments take that approach. I will say if I see someone with Crohn's disease, I don't say, well, I can see you for five to seven sessions and then I'll see ya. That's it. Um, we do, you know, if they have a flare or if they need longer ongoing treatment, that's certainly an option as long as we have a target. I think mm -hmm. the difference of a lot of what we do is we don't just 
it's it's theoretically just talk therapy in the sense that we are talking, but it's not talk therapy and come in and just talk to me. There's a lot that goes well, on. We out see of you're session. telling us all yeah. these mm-hmm. yeah. these amazing you know doors mm-hmm. to open. And at, at what point do you refer to maybe medication treatment? Mm-hmm. How do we, how do we distinguish between the therapies and maybe medication is needed? Well, I think that you know. Because the patients see a gastroenterologist usually before Prior. seeing us, they get some of, if it's a GI-specific medication, um, that conversation gets mm-hmm. started. Um, and then sometimes, you know, our gastroenterologists talk about those neuromodulator medications independently with patients too, but um, I think, I don't know, we play a big role in talking about whether or not that could be a benefit or not, and, mm-hmm. you know, we can't prescribe, but right. we can give a lot of information and um talk with patients about pros and cons of using these kinds of medicines. Um, right. I, I'm talking more of the psychotropic medication than uh, like a GI medication. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you distinguish that line? We actually would consider some of those psychotropic or psychoactive medications as a GI medication. Yeah. Like you exactly. say, it's the depression goes right, to, yeah. the, to the gut, which or the right, serotonin. Yeah. Which is, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cognitive shift, right? We have to make mm-hmm. that shift in our minds. And so does the patient... Because we think of this as what's a depression medication, right. but it's really just acting on a whole bunch of nerves and a whole bunch of neurotransmitters in our GI tract. So we've historically used it for depression, but hey, it's actually also this treatment that can be very effective for. And are people receptive to that? It depends. It depends. That's a good question, Julie. I think because you know, I, I was wondering that too. Of like, I mean, you if get you said you need an antidepressant for your. GI tract, I would probably look at you like you were crazy. Which is why we call it a neuromodulator. I think that's one of the reasons they switched it. It's the buy-in of the brain-gut connection. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, if someone has that buy-in, like, yes, this is, this makes sense to me. It resonates with me that there's a pathway here that's Mm -hmm. disrupted. Then that person's probably going to be more open Mm -hmm. to targeting with a medication or psychotherapy. Um, But if they're not, then they're going to be less receptive. You know, I think, I think if you actually think of it, this is not like a theoretical connection, right? Mm-hmm. And I talk to patients like, if you were to open up the body, you would actually see hardwired, real nerve cables coming down mm-hmm. out of your brain, going down and sticking in to your digestive tract. There's actually this cool exhibit at the Museum of Science and Industry. And I took a picture when I was there recently with my kids and texted it to Anjali. And I was like, look, this is what we're talking about. Because you can see the nerves like enervating into the intestines and into Mm -hmm. the stomach. And so if you think about it like that and really get someone to understand that, then they'll be more likely to consider that. But it might not be for them. And there are side effects of some of those medications that people don't want. Sometimes we actually have people who come to us because they've been on one of those medications and, hey, it's worked, but now they want to get off of it and their nervous, their symptoms are going to come back. And so we teach them cognitive behavioral or um, hypnosis and different strategies that they can use as they come off of them. That's because people wonder, how can I get off this, Mm -hmm. that you have that kind of therapy? And sometimes they actually, the, the changes that they experience with the medication will be maintained even if they don't get the therapy with us, but sometimes they either want the reassurance or they need that um, other piece. You know, I don't mean to shift the conversation, but I just, you asked earlier, what have we not talked about? I think we've spent a whole bunch of time talking about the lower gastrointestinal tract, Mm -hmm. and we haven't talked about the fact that we also treat 
heartburn. Yeah. Um, and yeah. belching and mm-hmm. this thing called globus sensation. What's that? Um, Actually, you know yeah. what? And not to interrupt, but I, oh, I do have a personal side to that. And that is one of my kids, my my son, had this this thing going on in his throat that he didn't know. This was years of, I, I, it's like choking, I can't. Yeah. And he they first said, um, what was before Globus? What is, acid reflux. Oh, it I was going to say that. celiac. Then it was Globus, then muscle tension dysphonia. I know to the listeners, you're like, you know, what is all this? <laughs> I didn't know either. But that he did hypnotherapy at one point, and oh, it wow. did help somewhat. Uh-huh. Um, so it, the upper, I was going to ask you about that, but go ahead. So that's why I have, Julie and I always squeeze in a personal story. There's always, <laughs> there's always a motivation for every mm-hmm. show, but uh-huh. go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to mention that we hadn't talked about that. And that, that yeah. is something that we, we also do and treat with, with regularity. Yeah. Um, so with the, similarly, um, as in the intestines, the nerves can become sensitive. They can also become sensitive in the esophagus. And so some people, have the experience, they feel like they're having acid reflux or heartburn when actually their nerves might be just having that really low threshold. So something's coming up, but it's not actually acidic. They might even be taking in a PPI or another medication to manage the acid, and they're still feeling that burn because their nerves are so sensitive. So you once again take the brain and retrain so that they don't have these symptoms. So They don't have them or they respond to them differently. Right, uh-huh. right. Sometimes the symptoms are still there, but they're not as bothersome to the person or stressful or Mm -hmm. um, they're not in their consciousness as much. They're able to better shift their attention away. Yeah. Really fascinating. I never even thought about the upper GI tract and and all that stuff. Are there other symptoms for upper GI that you didn't mention? Well, so there's like heartburn, there can be chest pain, there can be difficulty swallowing. Globus sensation you were talking about earlier is one of the most fascinating to yeah. me. It's that mm-hmm. sensation like right before you cry, almost like a lump in your throat. Mm-hmm. And that can become just very constant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? And people the think time. there's something there that they, they worry that they're going to choke or have trouble swallowing. You know, after my son had that, and, and he still has somewhat, it never really totally goes away, is what I've, what I, as I understand now. I'm talking to people that I know that are more of my age group said, I had that in my 20s. It mm-hmm. never totally went away. I had that. And a lot of the people say it never totally went away. Mm-hmm. Where does it come from? How so, does that start? <laughs> so I uh, I have personal experience with globus sensation. See, you're another, <laughs> you're another one. Mm-hmm. And I actually Even though think you're not it, my age. It came from a combination of stress and treating globus sensation. Yeah. <laughs> so I put because, it in your mind. Yeah, well, because part of what happens is is if you pay attention to any part of the body, you, you essentially open up the pathway between the brain and that part of the body, and so you feel it more, right? Mm-hmm. And so every time that you think about or talk about that part of the body, you feel it more. So when I'm talking to my patients, I usually often use this example of, you know, you're sitting in the chair. And before I talked about you sitting in the chair, you probably didn't feel your butt and your thighs against the chair. But now that I am, you're feeling them Mm -hmm. right now, right? And so if you're repeatedly talking about an area of your body, like I am in um, (laughs) hypnosis um, and in our therapies with upper GI disorders, then that activates that area. And if you combine that with a period of high stress, which we know can cause changes in our gut functioning, then you can develop that. So now when I experience very stressful events, I have very, very pronounced globus sensation. (laughs) Yeah. But then again, treating treating when you've had the personal experience is 
Is and then do you one. have to go for you your... Don't tell my patients about it. But <laughs> <laughs> Maybe now they know. That you know. <laughs> you know it's do you have just... to go for your own treatment then? Uh, it, you know, it's, I just do what I would do. Okay. Um, so what so you're teaching people, I breathe, you, okay. I yeah. remind myself that nothing's actually right. there. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say with, you know, people that, you know, find that it doesn't go away. I mean, this might be something if it is this, Yes, disorder brain gut interaction. This could be something that just kind of flares in stressful situations, Mm -hmm. and the understanding that this is how my body reacts to stress, um, I think, may provide some reassurance Mm -hmm. in saying, "Yeah," and not put people into such a panic that that they're choking or find a way dying. Find a way to manage a chronic condition. Is that what you're sort of? Yes. but I mean, I, I guess I approach it even with a, like a greater sense of just like when I'm stressed, mm-hmm. I might bite my cuticles, I might find that my heart is racing, and I might have this globus sensation. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's sort of part of this package of things that happen in my body when I feel stressed. And that's mm-hmm. the education piece of there is this mind-body connection. You are a human being. Your body is going through your life. And when you experience yeah. stress, your body experiences it too. Mm-hmm. Very um, interesting. Our GI tract especially – is the second, you know, second to the brain has the most nerves. So anytime you're going in through a life event in which you're feeling stressed, your GI nerves are also experiencing that stress. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's independent of the brain. So important. Yeah. So we can look at it like a, a chronic condition, but I think especially with some of these disorders of gut-brain interaction like globus, um, it's really this is my body experiencing this hypersensitivity here that's activated during stressful situations. That's certainly what it is for me. And sort of an acceptance and dealing with it. You know, you just accept it. Okay, this is what happens. And that will calm you down, so to speak, in your mind of, okay, this is what happens. Hopefully. And it will go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and sometimes that does lessen the symptoms and sometimes it doesn't. But at yeah. least you're not in panic mode. Mm-hmm. That's what I feel. At least you yeah. understand it. Exactly. And that in itself will lessen the symptoms. Yeah, the more you know. Yeah. Gosh, on that note, I can't believe we're out of time already. This was so fascinating. I can't wait till this podcast drops so I can share it with everyone I know. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both so much. This was enlightening. It doesn't even cut it. This was really, really interesting. And uh, we're so thrilled that our listeners get to learn this important aspect of the brain mm-hmm. thank, thank you so much for yeah, having us I'm so happy to be here i know there's so few of us we love to be able to disseminate and kind of share yeah this we field. definitely have to have you back yes <laughs> yeah the work you're doing is so important thank you oh, both. Thank same you. thank same. you same. you guys are doing great things thank you thank you so much don't forget you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoor at mail.com. That's behindourdoor at mail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, Leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback. It's important to us. We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-273-8255.
950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.